Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. I apologize if the audio isn't up to par. <clears throat> I think it's my voice that's a little gravelly. The, um, evidently, there have been some problems, and, and I can't do too much about it right now. This new headset I have is way too sensitive, and, and that might be some of the problem. I hear a little static every time I move because the microphone vibrates. I, I, I don't know. It's maybe it's, it's the same exact size headset I had that I've used for over two years, maybe three years, until um, until it broke last month. This replacement set is definitely not the same quality as the first one, even though it's the same model. I don't know. That's strange. Tonight is Saturday, January. 11, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, we hope to present Pragmatic Genesis, Part 13, the story of Jacob and Esau, from a two-seed-line viewpoint. I know that we covered parts of this story last week. I honestly don't remember how far we got into the material I wanted to present. We didn't get very far maybe a page or so, we're probably going to represent, represent part of that here this evening. Well, Phil, you covered... I could get this all into one, into one podcast. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you tonight? Well, we left off, you had just finished mentioning that Edom in the ancient Hebrew is the same exact word as Adam. You spoke briefly about that, and then we decided to pick it up later. Well, well, right, and we'll probably rehash a little of that tonight, too. That, that's okay. It's, I, I believe it's important anyway. Right. Do you have any opening comments? Any, um, anything in reference to the, the last discussion we had, mostly centered on why Isaac was sacrificed? Well, which right. is something a lot of people, and, and it's a shame, but a lot of the Christian identity pastors that I've met over the years, they can't even answer that question. To test Abraham's faith is the canned answer, but that's not the entire reason. That's only a small part of the picture. Well, I'd just like to say that the Jews have been doing this pretense about being Israel for however long now, thousands of years. And as I was saying before the recording started, their capacity for projection never ceases to amaze me. There's a Hasidic rabbi who wrote a letter to a Jewish newspaper, I believe it's in Germany. He was thanking them for um, bubbling over the faces of the goyim, since he said, we goyim are evil, us, and that Jews should not be associating with goyim, and they shouldn't have to look at the pictures of the evil goyim when they read the newspaper. And he was congratulating them, and he was urging them to just go one step further and completely, you know, airbrush out any of the goyim, because Jews are to be a race apart from the evil goyim. Okay, and, and ticks can't survive without dogs. The, the, um, the, the projection they use is basically a very effective means of, of deflecting attention. Right, but the seed line struggle that we've been covering... The righteous. It even extends to something as petty as a picture in a newspaper. There's nothing we can do that they won't hate us for. All the time. It, it's um, it, it's hard to quantify that to other white people because 
they can't imagine in their own minds how a particular race, and, and especially God's chosen people as they build themselves, could possibly be so evil. Whites, most whites are generally good-hearted people. They can't understand that Negroes are really animals and that Jews are really devils. They can't understand that. They see them as people just like them. Right. Well, and, if you're a compassionate, kind, loving person, it's hard to think the way a deceitful, treacherous serpent would think. Absolutely. So, so we, we are the guilty ones for projecting our good and moral values onto our enemies, the enemies of our God, the Jews, the blacks, the squat monsters. We do that. They do it, but we do it too. And the fact that we do it projecting our good values onto them that is more damaging than their projection of their evil onto us. That we actually, as a, a, a group, we actually project good values onto, onto Jews and try to imagine that they're good people just like we are, instead of the evil devil bastards that they really are, which is evident throughout history. So, so that's our projection. It is more damaging to us, I think, than, than theirs. It's because of our imagining them to be good that they get away with so effectively portraying certain whites, and especially whites that want to stand up in their own group as being evil. That's the way I look at it. No comment on that one. Well, I mean, they're evil, but they've convinced the entire world that they are the heirs of the covenant, that they are the righteous people, that they're the only chosen people in the world, and they have a covenant with God, and the rest of us are just peons, and we're just going, and we're cattle, we're here for their amusement. Well, well the problem with that is that most Christians would rather believe the Jew than to believe the Christ. Right, so instead of believing their own Bible and their own God, they'd believe a rabbi down the street who his ancestors took part in murdering Christ. Absolutely. And, and, and as the Apostle Paul says, their denial of Christ to this day is tantamount to murdering him over and over again, which, which is what they do. Well, well, Jacob was renamed Israel, and Esau was renamed Edom. We're not going to get into all the details of scriptures on that. This may fluster some people, but the name Edom in ancient Hebrew is really the exact same word as Adam. It, it's, the, the vowel points are different in order to distinguish it, and it's only distinguished in the context, but Edom is Adam. It's the, the exact same letters in Talio in ancient Hebrew before the Masoretic vowel points that Adam is. You can see that right in Strong's Concordance. This too, I believe, is a parable illustrating the difference between the man who would follow the will of God. Jacob represents the spiritual man who can therefore rule with God, which is the meaning of the name Israel. And the man who would follow after his own lusts, 
Esau is our primary model for this from Scripture. The man who would follow after his own lust represents the man of the flesh, and that's Esau. Jacob was blessed because he followed after the will of his parents and his God. Esau was cursed because he had no care for his heritage and based his actions upon his own fleshly judgments. Each of us can make a choice. As Paul, um, Paul of Tarsus talks about the two natures of Adamic man, the natural and the spiritual, we can choose to pursue the spiritual and the will of our God, or we could choose to pursue the lusts of the fleshly man and be like Esau. Esau took Canaanite and an Ishmaelite wife. He took right, well, several wives. Bill, the issue with, we're going to get into this, but it's important to realize, and I've pointed this out before, that the issue with Esau's so-called wives, he's still called a fornicator and adulterer, even though there's no indication that he ever had sex with any woman other than those women he married, the Hittites, the Canaanites, etc. The issue is that those are not valid, legitimate marriages in the eyes of God, so he's basically fornicating by taking up with another race. It doesn't matter whether or not he and that other tribe are calling that a marriage. It is not a marriage in the eyes of God. And his mother's objection has nothing to do with the fact that they're not following the laws of Yahweh, because that could change in a day. If her only objection was, oh, they're atheists, oh, they're idolaters, oh, they don't follow our religion, then that objection could be overcome by a conversion. But she never raises that issue, because the objection of race cannot be overcome by a conversion. Well, well no, it can't. And, and we will get into that a little further on in, in this presentation. The... Um, the valid marriage, the groundwork for it, the foundation required to have a valid marriage is laid out in Genesis chapter 2. Your wife must be bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. She has to be of the same race you are. That, that's one of the first lessons presented to our race in the scripture. And we fail it. So, so that's the first requirement for, for a, a lawful marriage in the eyes of God. Esau was married to Canaanites, and, and we'll get into a little bit the nature of the Canaanites. Of course, Canaan himself was an Adamic man. However, it's ostensibly, in, in Scripture, it's quite clear that the Canaanites, his descendants, no matter who Canaan himself married, his, and, and he was accursed, so, so it's plausible that perhaps none of Noah's other children would have wanted to marry Canaan. But that's immaterial. That's conjecture. It's very clear that the Canaanites were accursed by God, and they had mixed themselves with the Canaanites and the Rephaim who dwelt among them. That's, that, that's quite clear in Scripture. They were abhorred by God, and they were to be exterminated to the last man, woman, and child, the children of Israel failed to do that, and they're still being punished to this day for that. And, and we'll get into that hopefully in the next segment of this presentation a little more deeply. 
Esau took Canaanite and Ishmaelite wives, and indeed, Paul described him for that reason. There's no other reason that he was described as a fornicator and a profane person. That is scripture from Paul's epistles to the Hebrews. We will quote that further on in this presentation. And by this, he despised his birthright. That's why he despised his birthright. Esau was rejected by God for race mixing. Now, ostensibly, his mother, Rebekah, was the person whom Yahweh had appointed to ensure that Esau would not get the birthright. And he didn't because of the actions of his mother. Initially, and until Rebekah woke him up to the problem, and that's the way Scripture presents it, his father Isaac was more interested in his belly. Isaac loved Esau because Esau was a hunter and brought good food home. If it were up to Isaac, Esau would have got the birthright if Rebecca didn't intervene. This is an important story to understand because once the story of Jacob and Esau is presented properly from the scripture, it's very plain once you can identify these people in history as we do in Christian identity. That world history has, in fact, had Jacob and Esau at center stage ever since Genesis chapter, chapter 27, 28, 29. That long, Jacob and Esau have been at the center stage of world history. The, the world history and, and the biblical narrative have revolved around them. This is fully evident in modern history once we recognize and identify who these parties are today because the Bible is not a book of vanity and the descendants of these men are foremost in the world around us and, and including mo at least most of us here. I, I would hope all, but at least most. Yahweh chose these brothers to personalize the struggle between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15. Esau, the fleshly man of the two, joined the ranks of the enemies of God by intermarrying with them. Most men today are like Isaac or they're like Esau. They don't care about their heritage. They care about their bellies and are not like Jacob. And Jacob is he who would rule with God. He cared about his heritage. Most men today want to make their own way rather than follow the way of God. Well, there is a tendency to pick the path of least resistance amongst our people. And most people would rather have a high-powered career, a well-paying job, peace and harmony, or at least quiet at home. They don't want any sort of contention with their wife, and they don't want to go outside of the mainstream. There's a very narrow path, you know, this, this mainstream road, and if you deviate too far to that side or too far to that side, you make a lot of enemies, and most people don't want that. Well, well, right. There's a lot of truth to the, to, the, to the adage that most people refuse to leave their comfort zone. Most men don't want to make anybody else feel uncomfortable. They feel that they are in the wrong if they make anybody else feel uncomfortable, even if at the time of the action they felt they were right. Right, and, you know, it's Christ pointed out that, you know, um, narrow and straight as the road that leads to salvation, but it's also a very narrow road that 
people have to walk if they want to be acceptable to evil. Because if you cease being evil in some capacity, and it doesn't take much, just speak out against gay marriage and they want to ruin your career. Well, well, right, but that's one primary reason why it's so hard for real Christians to get along in society. And, and that's why real Christians, as we're told in Scripture, are to hate the world and, right. and, and keep themselves separate from it at, at least as much as possible. Right, and we were told, too, that they would hate us because they hated Christ first. Absolutely. The circumstances of the birth of Jacob and Esau are representative of their later roles in life. What, would you like to read this? That these five chapters of Genesis, these five verses of Genesis, right? Twenty twenty-five. And Isaac entreated Yahweh for his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, "If it be so, why am I thus?" And she went to inquire of Yahweh, and Yahweh said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And, and that's the, the first sign that Jacob was going to be the usurper that, that he was. And that's why Esau complained later on that Jacob was properly named because his name signifies someone, a, a usurper. He was properly named because he did just that later in life. Isaac loved Esau, and, and we're going to see that momentarily. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved his belly. Esau would have gotten the blessing because Isaac loved his belly. If well, it were not for Rebecca's alarm and her subsequent intervention. I wonder, though, can you be a usurper against someone who despises his birthright and throws it aside? For instance... Say you abandon a car on the side of the road because you don't care about it. You write abandoned on a piece of cardboard, put it on the, the window of the car. You walk away. Six weeks go by, it's still there, so I tow it back into you know my yard. I spend half a year or a year fixing it up, and I, I say, well, this is my car now. And then you come along and say, you've usurped my car. I want it back. Well, clearly you despised the vehicle. You weren't concerned about it. Well, well you're right, but Esau still thought that he was worthy of his father's blessing, and Isaac was still willing to give it to him. Right, well, I mean, at, at that point, Esau wasn't worthy of the air in his lungs. Well, well, of course not, but that's from our Monday morning quarterback hindsight perspective. Right. Would you like to read from 2070? You want me to? I will. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat, the, eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Jacob, I'm sorry, and Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. 
And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And I believe one aspect of this story that is hardly observed by most commentators is that if Jacob's brother was hungry, why did he not give his food to him freely? If Jacob loved his brother as he should have, he should have given his food to him freely because indeed, as godly men, we are our brother's keepers. If you hunger, I have an obligation to feed you if I have food. Jacob did not feed his brother freely, yet Jacob was still blessed by God. And, and with this, if we look at why Esau may have been despised and see that, we can easily see that it is evident that Christians are not obligated to help sinful brethren. We're not. If you see a white man that's a race mixer and you help him, you're basically putting your stamp of approval on his race mixing behavior. You're basically facilitating his race mixing by approving of him. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 of certain sins that not only they who commit those things are worthy of death, but also those who approve of the people committing them are worthy of death. Jacob obviously did not approve of Esau's behavior, even to the point that he wouldn't feed his brother. He wouldn't feed him, unless, of course, he got what his brother didn't deserve, which was that birthright. So Christians don't have an obligation to help sinners because you facilitate their sin. And the mainstream denominational sects teach, oh, love the sinner and hate the sin. That, that's bull. If a man's sinful, put him out. Hate his sin, yeah, but put him out until his until he either repents or dies, you put him out of your company. That's how it should be. In Genesis chapter 26, the promise to Isaac is reaffirmed. At the end of the chapter, following the episode amongst the Philistines, which we won't get into here, we have this. And Esau was 40 years old when he took the wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. In Genesis chapter 27, even though Isaac was grieved of mind, he still loved Esau. He was overlooking Esau's sinful ways because he liked Esau's food. In Genesis chapter 27, we see an episode where Esau goes off to the hunt to procure meat for his father's belly, expecting his father's blessing when he returned. And Rebekah arranged a way in which Jacob could procure Esau's blessing from his father while his brother was absent. This was done by deception, 
But even after the deception was discovered, Isaac agreed to it once it was done. I have to wonder, though, why is this even important? If if a father is calling on God to bless a race-mixing child and his bastard grandchildren, what does that really matter? I mean, at, at that point, God's not going to hearken to the voice of Isaac and bestow a blessing on Esau, the race mixer. So why go through all the lengths of this deception and this elaborate plot? Why not just, you know, go off and prove that, you know, you're worthy of the birthright that you've already usurped and forget, you know, who's blessing who? Well, well yeah, you know, it can only be conjectured because it's not explained anywhere. But how many fathers love their sons, no matter how wicked those sons behave, and and hold out hope for them that they repent? It happens all the time. There's a lot of Isaacs in the world. There's a lot of Esau's in the world. Isaac, he he wanted that venison. That's what he wanted. And that's the way it's portrayed in Genesis. And that is the that that must be the reason why Isaac loved Esau because he loved his belly because that's the way it's portrayed in Genesis. Otherwise, why would it be why would it be related in that manner? So you you could overlook a lot of evil for the love of of, of a son, even if you shouldn't overlook it. Genesis twenty seven nineteen. All right, you want me to? All right, you want me to start reading from there? I mean, it's... and Jacob said unto his father, "I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me." And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because Yahweh thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. And he said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field, which Yahweh hath blessed. Therefore, give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob and Jacob was yet scarce gone out of the presence of Isaac his father that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Well, well, let's hold it up there for a minute. Well, we're going to talk about the, um, the the blessing which any exchange between Isaac and Esau a bit later. Jacob dealt deceitfully with, with his own father in, in order to get what he felt Esau didn't deserve because Esau was a fornicator. 
Christians indeed have license to deal deceitfully with brethren when those brethren have strayed from the ways of our God. That's the example here. So long as the purpose of that deceit is to right a wrong which is caused when our brethren go astray. Esau despises birthright, so Jacob bought it from him, and then he stole his blessing, which is all well and good because Esau certainly did not deserve that blessing. Jacob was a usurper, but he usurped for the purposes of good and not for evil. Rebekah took upon herself all of the accountability for Jacob's deception. When after Jacob voiced concern, and he did, she said in Genesis 27:13, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice and go fetch me them. So, so Jacob, I've seen a lot of even Christian identity pastors, that clown Pete Peters, badmouth Jacob for his actions here. But Jacob has a re- an obligation to his race and his God first, and to his parents second. And he was told by his mother to do this. He, he didn't have much of a choice in the matter. She was making certain that the birthright fell into the hands that deserved it, and fell into the hands that that would that were more likely to preserve it. Esau was going to preserve it. Well, who who is Pete Peters to criticize deception? If I'm not mistaken, Christ even said, "Agree with thine adversary quickly, unless you be delivered to the judge and cast in the prison." And Peter denounced Christ three times. And then there's the story where Simeon and Levi slew all the Canaanite men in that one town where the prince had raped Dina, their sister. And they used deception to come into the town and slay all the men when they were laid low from the pains of the circumcision. So well, well right. Christians have every right to deceive the enemies of God. Right. And, so just because there's an, it, many examples in Scripture. Just because it's not a chivalrous scenario where we're dealing, you know, in a honorable manner with treacherous serpent seed, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with Jacob or that there's some problem here. So if Pete Peters is trying to apply his modern viewpoint, his modern worldview and perspective on a story that happened in antiquity with, you know, different rules or rules he's not aware of are applying, that's his problem. Jacob well, well, There's actually a tape on Clifton M. Heiser's website of Pete Peters um, severely criticizing a patriarch who was actually blessed by God. So Pete Peters evidently got too big for his own britches. I would want to criticize and, and rebuke any man that was blessed by God for what he did. That's actually to be found fighting against God. Rebecca took all of this accountability upon herself and Jacob is blameless in the entire matter. Rebecca justifies herself later, as it is portrayed at the end of Genesis chapter 27 in verse 46, where it says, And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Heth was the Hittite. 
If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Isaac had cared about his belly. He was going to give Esau the blessing. Rebekah cared about her heritage. Therefore, Jacob was blessed. Rebekah made it possible. And Esau was justly deprived of the birthright and the blessing. A good woman can steer her husband and her children in the right direction. That is what Rebecca did. The fact that Esau took Hittite wives and that they were a concern to his parents, where it says in Genesis chapter 26, verse 35, that they were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. And the fact that Rebekah was behind Jacob's usurpation of the blessing, justifying it by saying, at Genesis 27:46, that if Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Those facts coupled with Paul's statement in Hebrews chapter 12 that Esau was a fornicator and a profane person all proved that Esau lost his birthright because he was a race mixer. There's no doubt. And anybody that doubts this is just denying Scripture. Now, now it can be proven, as you said when we opened this segment, this isn't about religion, it's about race. The absolute proof of this is found in several places. First, in Genesis chapter 31, Laban the Syrian. If you read Genesis 31, he was an idolater. Rachel took her father's idols when she left her father's house with Jacob. Now, those idols, called their household gods, they did have a, a, a significance connected to her father's household. However, they were still idols. Rachel took them. So Rachel is basically an idolater also. Yet Jacob, marrying Rachel and Leah, the daughters of Laban, who was an idolater, Jacob married his daughters and still remained worthy of the promises. Their religion could be changed, but their race could never be changed. That's what was important. May Again, I relate? Go on. I wanted to relate a brief story. In 2006, when I was down near um, Louisville, Kentucky, right across the border in Indiana for a Council of Conservative Citizens meeting, there was a gentleman there from Mississippi, a good white man who was explaining a story that down in Mississippi, he had a friend, a former friend, who had a, a nice, pretty white daughter, and she got involved with a Negro. And he said, you know, well, that, you know, this Negro, he, he's a Baptist, he comes to our church, he's a brother in Christ. And, you know, she ended up getting pregnant. He met up with his friend, you know, shortly after the woman gave birth, or shortly before, I forget that detail, and he asked how things were going, and they said, horrible, you know, um, he, he ran off, and he's up in, you know, Detroit, and he's with Nation of Islam, and this white man from Mississippi then said to his friend, well, he was a Baptist for six months, your grandkids will be niggers forever, and he, he said that after that, his friend won't talk to him anymore. 
Well, it's true. It's absolutely true. This isn't about religion. It's about race. If we look at um, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we see that even Abraham's father had practiced idolatry. Yet Abraham himself was deemed worthy of the calling. Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Now that's a reference to the other side of the river, right? Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Behor, and they served other gods. So we see that Abraham's family, they were idolaters, but Abraham was still worthy of the calling. Rachel and Leah, their family, it, it's actually the same family, right? Because they were granddaughters of, of Abraham's brother. But their father and, and their kin were idolaters, and they were pulled out of that and made Jacob's wives. What's wrong with the daughters of the Hittites? It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with race. Therefore, concerning the Hittites, it had to be deeper than religion. It had to be a racial concern. Otherwise, Paul would not have called Esau a fornicator. And Paul uses that word, fornication, in, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he refers to a race-mixing event described in Numbers chapters 25 and 26, when the children of Israel joined themselves, not to the God of Moab, they joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, and in one day, 23,000 or 24,000 had fallen. That's a race-mixing event, and Paul describes it as fornication. Here we see Esau marrying Canaanite women, and Paul describes Esau as a fornicator and a profane person. Paul understood that the pottage was just a representative allegory. The buying of the pottage was only commemorative of Esau's disregard for his birthright. It was representative of that, which, because, which was because of his disregard for his race. Esau really gave up the birthright when he race mixed, not having Adamic children acceptable to God. The promises could not be passed down to him. If he were merely desperately hungry, Jacob would have been at fault for not giving him freely to eat. Because Esau was a race mixer, he was not worthy of Christian charity. And that, too, is an example for us today. If we assist sinners, we are seen in the eyes of God and in Scripture as facilitating their sin. We can't assist sinners. Do you have anything to say? Oh, I agree entirely. The um, Paul called Esau a fornicator, and, and I'd really like to read the entire um, 
chapter 12 of Hebrews in order to see the exact context that this is in. I, I right. mean, if you would like to read for us. Just as an aside, a final comment on the fact that Rachel came from a family of idolaters. A white man who marries and reproduces with a white woman who, whatever religion she might be, an atheist, a Zoroastrian even, she could tomorrow be a follower of Yahweh, but she can never become not white. So she's always going to be a white woman capable of bringing forth white children, where a Egyptian who identifies as a Christian, he could be a Shiite or a Sunni or whatever tomorrow, but he's still always going to be an Arab. Absolutely. The, the, um, the, the wives of Jacob, that they could be fixed under the tutelage of their husband even though they grew up in, in a pagan household. But the daughters of Heth could not be fixed because they were bastards in the first place. That's the, that, 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 that would be the only valid reason for Rebecca having such an objection. And, and for this being so important as to cost Esau his birthright, being called a fornicator by Paul. The Judeo-mainstream people, they get into speculation that Esau was unworthy of the birthright because he was out in the fields hunting and he was in a foreign country and he murdered and he raped and he cheated and he gambled and he did all of these horrible things. But when you ask them, okay, where are these horrible things itemized? What chapter and what verse? They just say, oh, well, it's not in the Bible. Well, right, but denominational sects that, that most of those people don't know their Bible at all. Or they say, well, he's referred to as a fornicator and adulterer, so he, he took a Hittite wife and then he cheated on her. Well, no, taking the Hittite wife is what makes him a fornicator and adulterer. Well, well that word profane, that, that, that word that's translated profane doesn't mean an adulterer. It means some, it, it's the opposite of the word that's always translated holy. That word profane is a word that means common. The race of Adam, and, and when God chose out Abraham from that race, he demanded them to stay holy. That's, why, that, that's one of the reasons why Isaac was sacrificed on the altar. When Isaac was placed on that altar by his father, Isaac and everything in his loins became the property of God, became dedicated to the purposes of Yahweh God. Therefore, Esau and Jacob were both holy. That's what the Greek word hagios means. It means separated and dedicated to the purposes of a God. That's what holy should mean from the proper biblical perspective. The children of Israel later on were considered holy to Yahweh. In Exodus chapters 19, when they agreed to be basically his wife, they were separated from the rest of the race and the rest of the world, and they were dedicated to the purposes of God. That's what holy means. Isaac, everything that came out of his loins was dedicated to the purposes of God. Esau violated that separation 
by consorting with the enemy. He was no longer hagios. Now he was coinous. Coinous is something that, that can be clean under the law, but it, it, it was mistreated by the law, under the law. In other words, perhaps animals that were improperly sacrificed, um, lepers that are not cleansed, anything that's not sanctified is common or coinous. That word is translated profane, and, and it simply means a... a um, it, it, it's more or less a religious signification that, that something's not sanctified. It's coinous. It's profane. It's common. Now, it, it's not something that's unclean because something that's unclean like swine, shrimp, shellfish, crabs, that stuff cannot be, makers, that stuff cannot be clean according to the laws of God. So you can't make swine holy but an Adamic man who, who's unclean is coyness. He can be holy, but he's profaned himself. He's religiously impure. That's what Paul's saying when he calls him a profane man. Right, he so violated that sanctity that the children of Isaac should have had because of Isaac's being dedicated to God. So if we're having a picnic and I invite you, and just before we're about ready to eat, I hold up the chicken and I declare that I am offering up this chicken to, you know, Mars, Apollo, and Athena. That chicken is clean, but I'm doing something profane with it. And that can be undone, though. That chicken can be made fit to eat again. Right. right. But swine can never be made fit to eat. Right. That's the difference between clean and profane in the New Testament. Most pastors don't even have a clue what the difference is. Something that's clean is designated by the law of God that it can be eaten. That makes it clean. And it's properly handled by the law. And it's not mistreated or, or, or defiled. So it's clean and it's sanctified, where something that, that um, is unclean after the law can never be sanctified. So, so you, there's two differences there. Something that's clean under the law can either be sanctified or profane. And, as you said, something that's profane can be made sanctified. But something that's unclean under the law, there's no hope for. It can never be sanctified. It's unclean. So, so there's two levels of, of cleanliness in, in the law that most people don't understand. Would you like to read Hebrews chapter 12? I, I probably have a few notes in brackets down towards the end. But. Do you have it? Brian. Yeah, Bill? Yes. Oh. Are you okay? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was muted there for a second. Oh, I don't. W would you like to read Hebrews chapter 12? All right. Hebrews 12. So, therefore, we also, having so great a cloud of witnesses lying around us, laying aside every pretension and easily attention-getting error with endurance, should run the race lying before us 
looking at Yahshua, the founder and completer of the faith, who for the sake of the joy lying before him endured the cross, having despised shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of Yahweh. Consider he who has endured such great controversy from wrongdoers in regard to himself, that you not be wearied your soul's giving way. Not yet have you resisted as far as blood, struggling against wrongdoing. And you have utterly forgotten the exhortation which you have as sons. He converses, My son, do not esteem lightly the discipline of Yahweh, nor faint being censured by him. For whom Yahweh loves, he disciplines, and he scourges, scourges every son whom he receives. You endure discipline as sons. Yahweh engages with you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Accordingly, we have had, as disciplinarians, our fathers of the flesh, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, and we shall live? Indeed, they for a few days had disciplined in accordance with that which is determined by them, but he for a benefit, for which to have a share in his holiness. Now, any discipline for the present seems not to be of joy, but of grief. Though later returns peaceable fruit of righteousness to those having been trained by it. On which account you straighten up those drooping hands and flagging knees, and you make straight courses with your feet that the lame not be turned aside, but rather it would be healed. Pursue peace with all and sanctification, which without no one should see the prince. Bastards cannot be sanctified. Sanctified, period. Bastards can't be sanctified. Watching closely, watching closely that not any are lacking from the favor of Yahweh, lest any root of bitterness springing up. And your note, bastard people, because we are not kept separate, would trouble you by it many, would trouble you, and by it many would be defiled. An aside, introduce a bastard and many are defiled, nor some fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one meal sold his own birthright. And as I pointed out, all it takes typically is one person to go race mix and then they end up destroying their whole family. They pull their whole family into that lifestyle. Usually the whole family you know, circles around them. They support them no matter what they're doing. And effectively, that entire family is now lost to the message of God. There were some Chinese nationalists writing about it, how China could send, you know, 10 million women over to America, get them to go with white American men, and then that would cause a pro-Chinese viewpoint to be adopted by all of those men and then their immediate families. Well, they've done it. They've done it. They're here. There's hundreds of millions of Chinese in, in North America right now. They're here. They've done it. Right. And your note was, the story of Esau, who despised his father's sanctification and race mixed, is why Esau is an example here. Well, well right. Paul is talking about bastards. He, he's talking about that root of bitterness that springs up because of our race mixing. That root of bitterness, that, that, that idea can be traced back in Scripture all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah 
and in and, and, and the Genesis account. However, it's always in connection with people who stray from the Word of God and, and, and mixed with the other races. The result is roots of bitterness that spring up. That's those half-breed people. But when you introduce one bastard into a Christian con- congregation, in a couple of generations, you could have many, many defiled people because that bastard is going to marry somebody's daughter. It's as simple as that. Bastards cannot be sanctified. Notice here that Paul gives us two choices. You're you're either a son or a bastard. There's no third choice. There's no, you're either a son, a bastard, or a Chinaman. There's no choice that you're either a son, a bastard, or a Negro, or a Nubian. Nubians were in Africa at this time. And, and, and were well-known by the Hebrews, and, and they were up into Egypt and Ethiopia. Paul doesn't give you a third choice. You're a son or you're a bastard. You're a child of God. Everybody else is a bastard. And, and that's the way Christians should look at it. That's certainly, the way, that's certainly the way that Paul looked at it. Esau was... A lot of people could look at verse 16 the way it reads here and say, oh, see, Esau was bad, just like Paul says, because he sold his, his birthright for a meal. But the way Paul words this, nor some fornicator or profane person, as Esau who sold for one meal his birthright, the way Paul words it shows us clearly that Esau's selling his birthright for the meal, is because he was a fornicator and a profane person. The, the, the fact that Esau was a fornicator and a profane person who d- despised his birthright, that comes first. Selling the birthright is a result of his despite for it because he was a race mixer. He sought the ways of the flesh and didn't care about the way of God. Do you know that even afterwards, desiring to inherit the blessing, he was rejected? Now, now we're going to talk about the blessing which Esau got from Isaac. A lot of people will say, oh, he wasn't rejected. Isaac blessed him too. That's not necessarily true. He was rejected for he did not find a place for repentance even after he sought it with tears. There was nothing that Esau could do once Isaac blessed Jacob, Esau couldn't get it back. Isaac told him, he shall be blessed. I blessed I've already blessed your, your brother Jacob, and he shall be blessed. Isaac wasn't going to take his words back. It couldn't be done, and Isaac knew it. Now, if we look back at why Paul may have called Esau a fornicator, there's only one reason, because he married Hittite women. There's nothing else that's described as Esau having done any wrong. The only possible reason why Esau could be a fornicator is because he married Hittite women. Paul here defines for us, again, what fornication is. Because that's what he's telling us was wrong with Esau in the first place. And fornication is what Esau did 
which could be nothing else but his race mixing. There's nothing else that Esau did wrong in the account except sell his birthright, which can't be labeled fornication. Paul says that he sold his birthright because he was a fornicator. He was a fornicator. The only possible definition of fornication in Paul's dictionary is race mixing because that's the only other thing that Esau did. So fornication is race mixing. And there are other witnesses to that. Besides Paul, there's Jude 7, and, and there's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's the many times in Scripture elsewhere that fornication is distinguished from adultery. Fornication is not adultery. Fornication is distinguished from arsenokoites. Arsenokoites, what would be men who had sex with men. Fornication is distinguished from that, where the two words are both mentioned as sins together, along with adultery, several times in Paul's epistles, at least twice, I think. So, so these three things are not equal. They're three separate sins. Fornication is race mixing. There should be no doubt. From here and from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Fornication is race mixing. Now, there's other things that the Greeks considered fornication because those things were illicit sexual acts. However, fornication, race mixing is an act of fornication because it is an illicit sexual act. It's that simple. Do you have any comments? No, that's exactly what fornication entails. And that's what we've said. <laughs> the issue here is not that the wives that Esau has chosen are unacceptable for religious reasons, because as we pointed out, that could change in a day. That could change like that. The issue is a racial one, which can never change. It can only become worse and compound on itself. Absolutely. The Hittites were Canaanites. They're listed in Genesis chapter 10 as Canaanites. It's pretty plain. Genesis chapter 15 tells us that the Canaanites, the Canaanites, who are the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, who are the remnant of the giants, all dwelt together in the land of Canaan. It's evident from archaeology and history, as well as from places in the Bible, that the Canaanites lived well beyond the borders of Palestine, all throughout the land that Yahweh promised to Abraham, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. And, and they even lived beyond that. They also dwelt throughout Mesopotamia and in eastern Anatolia. And we cannot imagine them to have contained themselves to those places over so many centuries without spreading out even further beyond the purview of Scripture. You know, there's a certain um, clown pastor from, uh, I can't even call him a pastor, he's a damn Jew, in Chicago, who says that, oh, the Canaanites were only in the land of Palestine, and Yahweh only wanted the children of Israel to kill the Canaanites in the land of Palestine. Well, that, that's an awful simplistic view of Scripture, because the Canaanites were everywhere. From, from Egypt all the way to, to the India, probably, and, and possibly even beyond that. People don't stand, stand still, and, and there's all sorts of historical evidence in the Scripture that they had wandered 
far out of range of Palestine. So, so that's a, a child's view of Scripture, and it's ridiculous. So the Canaanites, when they're in the land of Canaan, we have to slay them, but now that they've moved out and they own the whole world, we, we can't do anything. Well, well right. You know, the, the initial test for the children of Israel was to destroy the Canaanites in the land of Canaan. They failed that test, so, so anything else is moot. It's a moot point. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already a tree by the time that Adam was created. The seed of the serpent was kept within the context of the Bible primarily through Esau. And that is why the adversaries of Christ, this is important, this can't be overlooked. The adversaries of Christ were responsible for the blood of Abel in Luke chapter 11. The only people who could be held responsible for the blood of Abel are the descendants of Cain. Nobody else can possibly be held responsible for the blood of Abel. And that is how they were also the children, as Christ explains in John chapter 8, of that devil, that murderer from the beginning. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. The word Genesis means beginning. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. So Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8, Christ's words in those two chapters fully corroborate one another, that he's talking to descendants of Cain. Now we have Kenites in Scripture outside of the, the Edomites, and, and that's clear in, in, in the opening chapters of Chronicles, that the Kenites were the scribes in Judah, and there are bad figs in Judah who are actually mixed with Kenites and, and Canaanites, aside from Esau, but the Edomites had been folded into Judea in the second century BC, and it's the Edomites who became the leaders of the nation over the next 150 years, as we see in the pages of Josephus, where it's very well recorded. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, clearly distinguishes the Israelites in Israel, in Judea, with the Edomites in Judea, and tells us that the Israelites are the vessels of mercy, and the Edomites are the vessels of destruction. The only way that the Edomites could be responsible for the blood of Abel is if, through Esau's marriages to those Hittite wives, they also carried the blood of Cain in their veins. And they certainly did. That is how they were children of that murderer from the beginning because they were children of Esau, while at the same time, Christ and John the Baptist admitted that they were children of Abraham. The only way they could be both is to be Edomites through Esau, because Esau had the blood of Abraham, and his children had the blood of Cain. So this whole enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, it, is, it reaches its climax in the story between Jacob and Esau.
and the struggle between the two brothers, which is going on to this very day. Do you have anything you may add to that? Well, as I've said, it's going on to this very day, only most of our people have no idea this war is going on, and they don't know who the parties to the war are. They don't know anything about the sides in the war. Now, now John Chapter 8, in support of what we call to seed line, came, as Christ explicitly states, this murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8, did not have a father in common with him. Christ explicitly states that these descendants of Esau were not of his father. In John chapter 8, Christ calls Cain a devil. Now, think about this, because there's like a dichotomy of thinking here. If Judas Iscariot is a genetic devil because he was an Edomite, which can be demonstrated circumstantially, then Cain was a genetic devil also, because he was the son of a Revelation chapter 12 fallen angel serpent devil. By the words of Christ, Christ and Cain did not have the same father. Now, not for nothing, but if Christ and Cain didn't have the same father, then Adam can't be Cain's father because Christ descended from Adam and Yahweh, according to Luke, was the father of Adam. So Cain could not have had the same father with Christ. That murderer from the beginning had to have a different father as the father of Christ. So Cain could not have been Adam's father. Otherwise, Christ is a liar, or we take that word father and spiritualize it. And if we take that word father and spiritualize it in John chapter 8, we can slide right down the slippery slope of universalism because it has to be spiritualized everywhere else. We can't say that it's spiritual in John chapter 8 and it's physical in Romans chapter 4. We can't do that. We can't say it's spiritual in John chapter 8 and physical in Luke chapter 1. We can't do that. that that's this academically dishonest. It's intellectual treachery. No. The Edomites who were the enemies of Christ were the children of Cain, and Cain did not have the same father that Jesus Christ had, period. Or Christ is a liar. Esau was a race mixer, and it is quite clear in history that the descendants of Esau, who are also in part the descendants of Cain and the Rephaim, they had been the chief promoters of race mixing for the last 3,500 years, ever since Esau's children were born. The evidence is all around us today. They still do the works of their father, and they have done those works all throughout history. Only the corrupt genetics can properly account for their consistently corrupt behavior over so many generations. Well, Nothing else you know. There are descendants of Esau today in Chicago that are trying to turn this message into a message of bastard universalism. 
they're still doing these works. Well, well, absolutely. There's more infiltrators in Christian identity than there are in the Pentagon, probably. I'm guessing, but I'm probably accurate. Okay, maybe it's a slight overstatement. Not by much. Well, would you like to read from Genesis 27:19, and we'll examine the blessing of Isaac to Jacob. Genesis 27, and Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou bade me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison. Now, are we breaking this down here because we've already gone over all of this, right? I'm sorry, we have. I wondered if we were going to add something to this or if this was just a repeat for the sake of a repeat. Well, well, no, but let's just skip ahead to the... I, I apologize for that. I, I didn't realize we have read this, and I'll skip ahead and simply read the blessing part where, where Isaac says, See, the smell of my son is, is the smell of a field which Yahweh is blessed. Therefore, God gives thee the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Now, now this first line, this verse 28, is important where, where we examine the, the, um, the blessing of Esau because there's some contention among the translations in reference to the blessing of Esau, and, and I'd like to talk about that before we finish this program tonight. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee, be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curses thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. This is basically a, a, um, a passing down of the Genesis chapter 12 blessing to Abraham, passing it down, well, well Isaac thought he was passing it down to Esau, and ended up passing it down to Jacob. Now, Isaac upheld the blessing which Jacob received, and that's because in the ancient world, it was believed by just men that their words really mattered. A godly man believed that the words which he uttered would not fail. You couldn't take your words back if you were a godly man. You hoped that none of your words would fall to the ground. We're about to see that where I quote in support of this statement, 1 Samuel chapter 3, where we have an example of this, where after Samuel announced the vision which God gave to him concerning Eli and his, his, um, his corrupt sons, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20, and Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all, all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of Yahweh. Now, if you're a, a godly man, you pray that every word you utter is a godly word, and, and most of us, I, me for my part, are far from that, but, but you pray that none of your words fall to the ground, so you don't want to speak anything but the truth. And you don't want to curse anybody or bless anybody who aren't deserving of those curses or blessings. 
the blessing of Isaac to Esau. Would you like to pick that up? The blessing of Isaac to Esau. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat, and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise, and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. Esau, as your note, Esau was certain of obtaining his father's blessing solely because he fed his father's belly. And Isaac, his father, said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me even also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety, and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessings. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? Well, here he is crying and whining that his birthright was taken away. He gave it away. He, he frittered away his birthright. He, he squandered it. Well, well, right, but the arrogant man would not connect his sinful behavior to his loss of the birthright. The arrogant man would think, how dare he take away my birthright? I was the firstborn. That's my birthright. And, and not connect his, his um, sinful behavior to his deserving to lose it. And that's uh, what I believe we see here at Esau. He's a fleshly man. He's proud. He's arrogant. That's his birth, his blessing. How dare Jacob steal it? Right. And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants, and with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above, and by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. When will I slay my brother Jacob? In your note, Esau should have blamed himself for losing his birthright and blessing, but instead he blamed Jacob. Without Jacob, Esau still would have lost his birthright. Well, well right, he didn't deserve it. Look, look at um, verse 39, right? And we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. In verse 39, And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and the dew, and of the dew of heaven from above. Well, in verse 28, where Isaac had passed the blessing on to Jacob, he already told him, Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and water. So the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, according to his father's blessing, now belong to Jacob. 
Here he's depicted as giving them to Esau. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes, and I just want to put that out there on a front burner so that people can recall it when we do. Right. I was going to say that these were already offered or blessed for Jacob, and both parties can't have them. Right. And by the sword thou shalt live and shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion. So Isaac is predicting a time when Esau is going to break the yoke of Jacob from him, from his neck, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck, and that Esau shall have the dominion. And that we should probably talk about first. That the um, knowing who the Edomites are in history and the Israelites, we we can see that the children of Edom were basically servants to Israel for nearly three thousand years. David enslaved the Edomites, maybe a thousand BC, and they were slaves until the Assyrian conquests. And after that time, that they were subject to other nations for the next. 2,500 years, and usually those other nations had Israelite rulers. I mean, there was a time when they were subject to the Babylonians and, and the Assyrians, and those times were short. They were subject to the, the, the Parthians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all, all of those empires, the Parthian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, they were actually Israelite empires that had the Edomite subject. Now, from the time of the, um, the, the Middle Ages, throughout the Middle Ages, the Jews, the Edomite Jews, were basically chattel property of, of the kings of Europe. They were subject to the kings of Europe, all the way up until the French Revolution. At the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jew, that's when the yoke of Jacob was taken off of Esau's neck. And Esau has basically gained the dominion. As Isaac said would happen. That that that, that the Jewish emancipation is the breaking of that yoke. And ever since then the Jews, the tail has wagged the dog, and the Jews have had the upper hand in Israelite Christian society, as Isaac predicted. Now, that Esau would have the dominion must certainly be the time of Jacob's trouble prophesied in Jeremiah. For thus saith Yahweh, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see, whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, even that none is like it. It is even the time, the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. 
And, and there are other prophecies that can be brought in. That, that is basically a, a study in, its, in itself. It's not, well, well, it is connected to the seed line, and perhaps we'll discuss it at greater length with the New Testament. But the time of Jacob's trouble, we're in it. And this is the time that Isaac told us about. 3,700 years ago, 3,800 perhaps years ago, probably about 1,800 B.C., if, if I had to guess at, at the time that this blessing is taking place. There's no doubt. And these people can be identified in our society to this day as Christians for the most part and Jews to a great extent the children of Jacob, and the children of Esau. Now, to, to make this brief, in Genesis chapter 28, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and told him to go to Padanaram. And from there, and, and, and that he should not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, that he should take a wife from his mother's kinsmen, and his mother's brother was Laban the Syrian, and that he should take a wife of his daughters. He ended up with two wives and two handmaids, ostensibly of the same race, from those daughters. But Esau, he saw that his father was displeased. He finally saw that his father was displeased at his Canaanite wives, and he doesn't get his father's counsel. He goes out, and gets himself an Ishmaelite wife, thinking to please his father with her. Well, well Ishmael was already excluded from, from, from the, the promises given to Abraham. So, so how could that please his father? And, and that's what he tried to do. So basically, that's like coming home with an Arab. Your father is displeased, so you go out and you come home with a Turk. Yeah, right. Basically, basically that's what he did. I mean, there's no... What we don't really know who Ishmael married. I mean, the promises to Ishmael can easily be fulfilled in spite of who Ishmael married. He was only promised to be a great nation and a great people, and, and basically that was about it. Well, well, we don't know who Ishmael married. He, he made, there, there were plenty of Adamic people around that weren't Canaanites, but that, that, that's besides the point. Ishmael's children with Ruel dwelt among the Horites and evidentially had to eventually intermingle with Canaanites no matter who they were. Now, as for this blessing, what we see that Isaac gives the same blessing to Esau according to the King James Version of Genesis that in part he had given to Jacob. Now, the NAS version of Genesis 27:39 has an alternate reading, and this alternate reading can be substantiated. And, and if we look at all the popular versions, they're basically divided along the lines of the NAS against those which are following the, the, the um, translation in the King James Version. I'll read the NAS version of Genesis 27:39. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. The fertility of the earth was given to Jacob, 
and away from the dew of heaven from above. And the dew of heaven from above was given to Jacob. Now, now, that's a big difference because it's exactly the opposite of the way that the King James reads. Now, when we understand the NAS version of the translation, then, and, and we accept that, then we could see why Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12 that Esau sought a blessing and did not get a blessing. Paul said he didn't get a blessing. The King James Version of Genesis reads as though he did, but it reads as though he got, in part, the same blessing that Jacob got. Well, the NAS agrees with Paul that Esau's dwelling would be away from the fertility of the earth and away from the dew from heaven above. Things which are seen as providing fruitfulness and, and bounty and plenty. Now, Breton's Septuagint version of Genesis twenty-seven thirty-nine agrees with the King James, but the Greek does not in that the, um, the preposition, which is translated of by Brenton, of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven, that preposition is apo. And there's two prepositions which mean from in Greek, apo and ek. Ek properly means source or origin, from something, out of something. Apo generally means separation from and not source or origin. So if we read the Greek of the passage, the Greek can very easily agree with the reading in the NAS. So it, it's Paul seems to verify where he says that Esau sought a blessing and did not get one. Paul seems to verify the Genesis 27, 39 reading from the NAS rather than the King James Version. Now, let's look at the history. Have the Edomites had their dwelling with the fertility of the earth. That they're the last people in history to be farmers. <laughs> you don't get uh, much of the do of heaven when you're sitting in a counting house tallying up your coin. They just don't. They're bankers. They're accountants. They're bankers. And, and they're hucksters and merchants. They're not farmers and and. and gardeners and, and things associated with the fertility of the earth and the dual heaven. So it seems to me that if we read the NAS, the blessing which Isaac gave to Esau is very much like the curse which Yahweh placed on Cain. Do you have any comments? That can't be a coincidence.
Well, no, it can't be a coincidence. I, I, because of the words of Paul, and, and I really didn't get time this afternoon to put this all in my notes, which I passed the, I apologize for that. And, and there is other questions, so it's a little more complicated than that. But because of the words of Paul, it's easy to accept the reading in the NAS, the way the NAS reads the Hebrew. And the Septuagint Greek can confirm the NAS reading because apo is the preposition and not ek. So it, it's, it is what it is, but Paul verifies the NAS reading as far as I'm concerned. That's the story of Jacob and Esau, and, and we're going to cover other aspects of this story as, as we proceed with the series. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do next week. I think I might feel like taking a break from this for a week or two and covering something different, presenting something different, going to Martin Luther. I don't know how, how you feel that that's equally important, so we'll talk about it during the week, and I'll just mark next week's program as to be announced. Fair enough. Okay, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening, everybody. This is ChrisDegenia.org. Good night. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Praise Yahweh.